Right, should we get all serious now? Because I may have undersold that story a little. Oh, no, it was, it, it was glorious. No, I really don't think you undersold it. It, it was poetry <laughs> of a sort. Seamus Heaney might disagree with you. I, I think he may query certain points of your understanding of the pace of it and the... I maintain <clears throat> every detail that I mentioned <clears throat> was mentioned. It was. They are. Yes, very mentioned. Okay. I mean, I love the story of Beowulf, mm. and as a piece of epic heroic poetry, it makes the, the hairs on the back of my neck just stand upon end when I hear it. We've heard it performed by storytellers in verse. You can get audiobook versions of it. You, we've heard it done in prose. There's a, a chap who does it in the original Anglo-Saxon. He's on YouTube, isn't he? He is on YouTube, so we'll put the link into the description of this podcast. So have a read there if you want to sort of see his versions of it as well as ours. But as a five-minute version goes, that was pretty good. <laughs> so what does the red spectrum tell us about Quasar? No. What does the story of Beowulf tell us about Anglo-Saxon culture? Beowulf, from how they've analysed it, they think it's probably written around 800 AD. So okay. it's about a thousand years old. That would be the fair early early part of the what I think of as the Viking Age. Yeah. Just, just coming into it, yeah. or it is in the northern European countries. Yeah. So this, but I mean, this tale, although it's either written in Anglia or it's written in Northumbria, which are a little bit of a distance apart. Yeah. It deals with events that are in Denmark and in Geatland, mm. the people of which would have come over to Britain, and brought their to- brought their tales with them. So this would have originally been something that you went and listened to, and every storyteller would have had their own. Slightly different version of it, whether in prose, whether in you know alliterative poetry, whether they would have been accompanied by a harp or by drums, or just stood and recited it, whether they were in you know a rich lord's hall that could afford a storyteller, or whether they were in a circle of people just making their own entertainment. Everybody who knew this would have been telling their own slightly different version. Mm. So when um, when it's told properly by someone who isn't a total philistine. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> that to me is what makes a good story, is if you've got enjoyment out of it, yeah. and if it makes you laugh, that's you know that's a good thing. Fair enough. We're talking, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about Anglo-Saxons, their, their culture sort of comes onto my radar around about 410 AD. Yes, AD end of the Roman, uh, end of the Roman era. As the Romans leave, um, and over the next sort of 50 or 60 years, the empire starts to fragment and collapse. The Roman Empire um, does. The Roman Empire. Yeah. Over that period and into the sort of five and six hundred, you're getting that that drift of of settlers over from continental settlers, continental yeah. over from <clears throat> sort of Denmark, Belgium, Germany, Germany places <clears throat> like that, are coming over and settling the, the 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 sort of English East Coast and South and what's well basically what's now England. Mm. But if we're talking about that kind of culture, then we're talking about sort of fifth sixth century when they first started to to, to settle themselves here. 
I mean, at that time, would this would this already have been? We we think we can pin down that it was written about eight hundred. Yes. Okay. So yeah, from the words that they use, the linguists will use equivalent the equivalent to a satnav for words to see where they've come from. Okay. Yeah. And where they've been, and what influence they've had on them, and they will use those to build up a picture of where a document might have been written. The first mm. thing that comes into my head when you when you say that is the word Caesar, mm. which everybody knows in modern and especially in popular culture, we all we always say Caesar. It's not pronounced Caesar; it's pronounced Caesar. And we know it's pronounced Caesar because the linguists have studied words... Because nobody speaks Latin as the Romans did. No, but I only speak it enough to buy a newspaper. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but by studying modern words, they've worked out what Latin would have sounded like. So they've, they've sort of... They look at the German expression Kaiser. Mm. And they, they realise that that comes from the same source. And they look at the, the Russian Tsar. Mm. And that comes from the same source because these are these are all cultures that sort of took a lot of influence <clears throat> from or grew off from the mm. the, the Romanized culture of the time. So it's kind of a similar thing. They're looking <clears throat> at the as you say, like the linguistic structure of the of the work, and they're saying, oh well, if we follow that trail back and that trail back in that direction, we can they kind of converge yeah, there. You can get a rough place. Now there are two theories. One of which says it came out of Northumbria. One mm. of which says it came out of Anglia. Okay. Wherever this came from, it's certain that before it was written down, it was very much a popular piece of storytelling that every storyteller would have had their own version of. Like it was an oral history oral before legend. it was a written history. Beowulf can be a little bit tricky if you're coming at it from the first time. It's a massive epic poem. Mm. But there are, because of the language it's originally written in, some translations will literally translate it word for word, which is awesome and all good, mm. but the original version would have had that sort of, it has a, a form to the poem where the line is split with sort of a half breath in between in the middle of that line, and it's usually alliterative words on each side. So one half of the line might be all A's, and then the next half might be all S's or S sounds. Because this was very, <clears throat> this was very important in, in a lot of their storytelling, wasn't it? They yes. Would have, and I say there, I'm, so I have a very lyrical quality to the work. Yeah, I know this is something common to a lot of the sort of Northern European yeah. cultures, Nor, Norse, Ang Anglo-Saxons, whatever. A lot of the and a lot of the sort of Germanic nations of the time, they would they would do a lot of, there would be a lot of alliteration, there'd be a lot of re repetition. Yes, repeating of lines or repeating of imagery or of sounds mm. means that you end up with sort of a deeper layers and layers and layers of understanding. Mm. When somebody mentions a word or a phrase or an image, you're not only seeing it in that particular point, but you're remembering all the points before that, that it's also been mentioned or heard, and you're bringing all of those interpretations into colour what you're hearing. Yeah. So with Beowulf in its original language, it's very alliterative, it's very lyrical. Mm. If you do a direct translation of the words into English, as in an absolute precise, no-nonsense translation, you lose all of that alliteration and all of that rhythm and all of that lovely lyrical quality that makes the words ring. Yeah. You lose all of that completely. So if you if you take uh, if you take a purely academic approach yes. and say okay what do these words mean you and do you it just, absolutely literally yeah and you just translate <laughs> it through you get the meaning and you and you you can I could I could basically you end up with what I did back then you could sort of you could have somebody read through the sequence of events yes and the people involved but what you're losing is the entertainment the art value the craftsmanship on top of that so there is a version out there which is the one I prefer, 
which is the one that's been translated by Seamus Heaney, who is a poet himself. Okay. And he does do a standard edition and an illustrated edition. And the reason I like this particular translation of it is because he doesn't just translate the words. He looks at the meaning in translation and then takes it back into that poetical form. So he looks at word alliteration. He looks at that lyrical quality of image that would have been in the original he puts into the new version so where it might not be an absolute precise translation Mm. for me his version is a lot closer to what the original would have been and what it feels like and what it sounds like and that sense of absolute craftsmanship in the words the original sense sense of it and the and the the feel of the words yeah well there are very very many versions of beowulf available this is probably the one that i feel conveys that sense of craftsmanship in words Mm. there are audiobooks available of the poet reading his own version and oh my goodness oh i can close my eyes and i'm sat in a 10th century mead hall listening to him his words are rich like christmas cake oh crikey i do like i do like christmas cake also christmas pudding i love christmas pudding too. that doesn't have marzipan on no but i i still love it okay and i don't even celebrate christmas no but still good. I still love Christmas pudding. Okay. So, you know, I just thought I'd mention it. That's, yeah, fair play. That's yeah. Right. Okay. Carry on. So there are lots of different versions of Beowulf available, but there is this version done by Seamus Heaney where he looks at recreating that richness of language, which adds additional layers to the experience of either reading it or hearing it. Mm, okay. So now I have waxed lyrical. Aha, uh-huh, see what <laughs> I did there. That's very good. Uh, Thank you. Epic lyrical. I've been saving that, yeah. Um, now I have wax lyrical, and you have definitely wax lyrical. You have earned your cookie tonight. Thank you. Okay. Oh, does this mean I qualify as a bard now, then? Well, you might qualify as a mini bard. A mini bard? A five-minute bard. You get them in hotels, don't you? You do. A mini bard. Mini bards, yes. Oh, can I get, <clears> you get charged for opening them. <clears throat> can I do get out your bard? <laughs> that was bad. That's old. <laughs> That's an old one. That's a Shakespearean joke. Oh, that's a good point. What was the Shakespeare line you were going to put in here? Oh, because we were, we were, we were, we were, act, well, we weren't acting out the dragon and Beowulf. Final, we definitely weren't acting out the dragon and Beowulf on our walk around this evening. We don't do, we don't do like the role play thing with Mortal Kombat between man and worm, man and dragon, whatever. Mm. Fire Drake. Fire Drake. I believe is the expression. From the Latin, dra- Draco, meaning dragon. Do you get draconets then? Dracon, dragonino, little dragon? A little dragon. Do you want to know what the, little, the Latin for little dragon is? Yeah. Dracula. No. Yeah. Oh, that's wrong. That's why he's called that, because he's he is the... His Son father of... was the known as the dragon, because he was a member of the Order of the Dragon. Okay. And little Vlad was called Dracula, because he was son of the dragon. Yeah. I have learned a thing. It's cool, isn't it? Okay, what was the Shakespeare you were going to do? The, <clears throat> yeah, no, there was a... Um... Because we, we definitely weren't. Acting out Beowulf, the Beowulf's fight with the dragon on our evening walk tonight. There was a there was a bit where they they've both mortally wounded each other and they're like they're slipping down and they're just like gripping onto each other as they as they sink into oblivion. Beowulf presumably I don't know whether the dragon can talk. Presumably it can because they usually can. But don't know whether this one does. And the, <clears throat> the the quote that came to my mind was from Hell's heart I stab at thee for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. And quite a lot of the people listening to this, assuming there are a lot of people listening to this. There might be one. Or there's every chance that the listener listening <clears> to this has gone, hang on, that's from the Wrath of Khan. 
which it is, the classic Star Trek films, borrow liberally from Shakespeare. Six is just Shakespeare from beginning to end. So do not do the Shakespeare drinking game with Star Trek Six. No. No. Because no. epic flaw will happen. I am constant as the northern star. I'd give good money if he'd shut up. Okay. The last bit's not from Shakespeare. That was Dr. McCoy. Okay. I watch too much Star Trek, don't I? Possibly. But it's Why okay. are there no Vulcans <clears throat> in Deep Space Nine? I don't know. But Beowulf, if we come back to Beowulf and off the fabulous wonders of Star Trek Six, in all its awesomeness... It is awesome. It is awesome. But let's come on back to Beowulf. There are a couple of other accounts and bits and pieces that, that tie into it that people might want to go and explore for themselves. Beowulf is one of the major sources for a film that uh, our lovely listeners may have heard of called The 13th Warrior. Oh, yes, good film. From 1999, with the accidental appearances of Antonio Banderas, which is no bad thing. <coughs> Steady. Sorry. And Omar Sharif. Which one's he? The old one. Does he warrant a... Or he, he might warrant a... Okay, fair enough. So... Antonio Banderas, Omar Sharif, in a film called The 13th Warrior from 1999, which didn't make a whole lot of money, no, but did cite as one of its sources, Beowulf. Okay. Because it's about an account from an Arabic traveller, yeah. an Islamic, Muslim Arabic traveller, mm-hmm. about the lands of the north. And they witness uh, a chieftain's funeral on the banks of a river, and they then go with Bullywith to go and solve a hall that's under siege, which follows the path a little bit closer to the story of Beowulf. The film The Thirteenth Warrior was based on a book by Michael Crichton called Mm -hmm. Eaters of the Dead from 1976. I read it. Rocking the 76. Mm -hmm. He is, Michael Crichton is the same chap who brought a sphere and Congo and a small film or two about dinosaurs in a park and the ethics of bringing um, them back um, what was that um, one oh it was um oh what was it called cretaceous garden yes that Mm. one and now all i've got is in a cretaceous garden under the sea and i don't think the beatles wrote that one (laughs) i think they wrote another one completely different so we're going to skip that part so he wrote eaters of the dead 1976 Mm. and it was again this sort of merging of the storyline of beowulf and this arabic traveler's accounts of going through those lands in a funeral okay now, he based Eaters of the Dead on Beowulf, but his other source for his book was a 10th century account by an Arabic traveller who describes the people, the Rus, along the Volga River trade routes in the 10th century. So these, yeah, Volga River, if my geography's not too hot, this is sort of northeastern Europe into the... Into, into the steps, Siberia, into Russia. Siberia. Siberia is <clears throat> over there. Yeah. You know what I mean. Turn back to Albuquerque for Siberia. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> I said my geography wasn't up to much. He's fine. He's fine. Just misplaced <laughs> Siberia. Anybody can do it. <laughs> Just down the back of the sofa. Yeah. <laughs> Have you checked under the bed? I'm sorry, Russia. <laughs> I know where it is, really. <laughs> Okay. Carry on. Thank you. So he's quite specific in his account, and it's his account that I want to talk about in conjunction with Beowulf because of these, uh, the Eaters of the Dead and the 13th Warrior that both use the Beowulf narrative, but they integrate it with this Arabic account as well. Okay. So he is commonly known as Ibn Fadlan. Mm -hmm. 
His full name. Big deep breath. How are we going to do on the pronunciation here? Uh, horrible. My Arabic is really not good. Yeah, no, mine neither. So, so anybody that speaks Arabic, please excuse my pronunciation. It will be terrible. Mm-hmm. His full name is Ahmad ibn Fadlan ibn Al-Abbas ibn Rashid ibn Hamad. It sounded good. Thank you. To somebody who doesn't speak Arabic. It sounded fabulous to me, and I have no idea how to speak Arabic. Basically means Ahmad, son of Fadlan, son of Al-Abbas, son of Rashid, son of Hamad. Yeah, that makes so sense. So it's his... Because I knew... Because Ibn is... Uh, son of. The Arabic equivalent of Ben in Hebrew, isn't it? Yes, or Van in Dutch, or Von in German. Or O, or Mac. Yes, now, we know we've got very precise date of when he set off because he wrote the dratted thing down. Which is, which very, is great. Very obliging, yeah. Very obliging. So, the most complete copy we've got of the manuscript is from the 13th century. Okay. We have one a little bit earlier than that, but it's not as complete as the 13th century version. So, the 13th century manuscript, copy of his copy of his copy of his copy of his copy of however many to his original, is 420 pages long in Arabic. Crikey. Yes, he wrote it in Arabic. It was <clears> now in Arabic. It was in yeah. Arabic in the 13th century. Has it been translated and retranslated and generally sort of... It's been translated into English and there are a couple of sort of notable sticking points with his account. Mm. Um, aside from the fact it's not complete, which is phenomenally frustrating because it, as far as I remember, kind of stops mid-sentence. Oh, that's bad. And there's no clue, because it just ends the page, and there's obviously been more written after that, but we've only got this section of it. Um, But we do know some things. We know that on the 21st of June, 921 AD, it's that precise, um, a diplomatic party leaves Baghdad, and their mission is to boldly go... (laughs) Sorry, couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. It's not my fault. I thought we'd flush the Star Trek out of the airlock. No. No, we're never going to flush it out of the airlock. There you go. It's fine. Their mission is to take the more detailed specifics of Islamic law and Islamic practice to recently converted people living on the Volga River. Okay. Uh, The Bulgars have been recently converted to Islam, so the Caliphate of Baghdad sends a delegation to teach them the finer points Mm-hmm. of proper Islamic practice. Okay. Ibn Fadlan, because I'm not going to repeat his full name every drat of time, Please. and he's usually just known as Ibn Fadlan. Okay. He serves as somebody very knowledgeable in Islamic law and an advisor on Islamic religious practice. Okay. So he's going along with the delegation to make sure that these newly converted Muslims are able to practice the faith in a proper and true way. And he's Antonio Banderas. He is Antonio Banderas. So the largest part of his account, because he details a lot of the peoples he comes across, Mm. but the largest part of his account is dedicated to the Rus, the Eastern Vikings who are living along the Volga trade route, which they're travelling up. Now his account is very remarkably not particularly biased in how he presents the information. There are a couple of noted points. He is shocked at how they treat their horses in particular, on particular circumstances. And he doesn't think they're very hygienic. Although he does know, to be fair, that they comb their hair every day, but he 
coming from an Arabian Islamic fastidiously clean world, mm. he goes along the Volga River and he's like, what on earth are you doing and why aren't you washing and keeping yourselves clean? And he says that their hygiene isn't particularly brilliant. I'd say a horse was particularly <clears throat> hygienic if it brushed its hair every day. Oh, stop it. I'm sorry. You are not. I'm not. You're not. Sorry, not sorry. No. Okay. So what he describes <clears throat> is he describes them as a trading, primarily a trading peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, he says they're very, very tall. He says they're as tall as palm trees. So either they've got very short palm trees in Baghdad or they've got very tall people in Russia. And I haven't quite figured out which one it is, but he says they're very tall like palm trees. Okay. He says they have blonde hair and they have ruddy skin. Is it, is it fair to say he was just being metaphorical there? Possibly. Okay. Possibly. But I still like the idea of, you know, palm tree Vikings. <laughs> That's the whole thing in my head right now. They have some really <clears throat> big... Okay, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say leaves. You were not going to say leaves. They have great big leaves. But he also says they're tattooed. Okay. Um, And he says they're tattooed from fingernail to neck is the phrase he uses. So they are covered in tattoos. Um, And all the men are armed with axes, an axe, a sword and a long knife each. Mm -hmm. He does describe in huge amounts of detail the funeral of a Viking chieftain, which includes an account of human sacrifice. Okay. The account itself is incredibly detailed and without his account we wouldn't know of that practice at all. Mm. And because his account isn't sensationalist, he isn't doing it because he's trying to belittle people he's seeing, he isn't doing it for any kind of political reason. He's doing a very straightforward account, apart from a couple of places where his personal bias shows through. It's Mm. a very very clear account of what's gone on. But even there, I mean, if he's, you know, he's simply observing things... Mm. the way he sees them. I mean, as long as he's making good faith observations, I'm just thinking in terms of in terms of comparison to um, Caesar's writings mm. um, in De Bello Gallico. But he's doing De Bello Gallico as a political statement. That's, that's what I was going to say. <clears throat> so, I mean, and, and a lot of, you know, he, a lot rode on him presenting things in a certain way. Elephants. Elephants. They're like really, really big upside down squirrels. <laughs> I love that. So his account of the funeral is very detailed. It's mm-hmm. very specific, but it does sort of give us one notable um, language difficulty. His primary language is Arabic. Now, in the film The 13th Warrior, he doesn't speak the language that the Rus speak, mm. but he does speak Latin. Okay. But there is one Rus that also speaks Latin. So, if you imagine the account, uh, when he's sort of saying to this Rus trader, what's going on, what is she saying? Mm. The Rus guy is taking his language and putting it into Latin. And then they're taking the Latin Latin and putting it into Arabic. Mm. So the word that really gets scholars all up round in a twist is the fact that in the account of human sacrifice, they lift the girl that's to be sacrificed up three times and they show her her doorway. Mm. And they say to her, who do you see through the doorway? Okay. And she says, it, very famously, lo there I do, I see my mother. Lo there do I see my father. Lo there do I see my line of my ancestors stretching back to the beginning and they are waiting for me in paradise. Mm. That last word is the problematic word. Paradise. Paradise. Because he would have known paradise as a Muslim. 
Mm. And he wrote the word paradise rather than the word heaven mm. or another word that the Rus were using. It could be that the chap who was he was understanding it through was saying the word heaven in Latin, which he then translates as the word paradise into Arabic. So there's no basically there's no way we can know what kind of concept that girl had in mind. Mm. What was she saying? When she was being lifted yeah. up, we don't know what she had in her head, what concept of, of afterlife or, or whatever. I mean, even that, even <clears> me saying that is, is falling into the same trap. Yeah, but you can probably make a fairly good assumption that it's not the Islamic paradise. So that's where there's a little bit of a sticking point. But it does show us a quite... It, the film and the book, The Eaters of the Dead, which are both based on Beowulf and this account of the funeral. Yeah they do show us a couple of important things. Um, both of them have uh, a wise woman, a vulva, come in and advise the highest warriors on what they, what they should do. So is this in the original narrative then, or is this is this sort of made up for the film? I mean, this did he actually go along with them for something, or did he, <clears throat> did he fight alongside them? Uh, well, no, in the... In the very original, in the 10th century version, he describes them primarily as traders, mm-hmm. uh, and he describes their their physical appearance. And the largest part of his account is about the Rus people. Um, you know, he describes the the funeral. Uh, but if you're looking at the book, The Eaters of the Dead, mm. that's multiple narrative viewpoints. Okay. And the film, The Thirteenth Warrior, is then a blending of that 10th century account and the account of Beowulf that was originally based on Michael Crichton's book, The Eaters of the Dead, it has then has then meshed these two 10th century storylines together to make one modern interpretation. Okay. Yeah. Ibn Fadlan is not the only 10th century traveller from the Eastern lands who comes across the Rus. Mm-hmm. There's a 10th century Persian chap called Ibn Rusta, okay. who also comes across the Rus, and he writes, he, he calls his book... Very humbly, he calls it the Book of Precious Records. Okay. Which is a fabulous title. I mean, I can't quite imagine pitching that to a publisher, but he does. And he also describes the Rus pretty much in the same terms that Ibn Fadlan does. Okay. But he's also from Persia and therefore has the same kind of... He's bringing the same concepts with him to, to colour that description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he describes the Rus as they carry clean clothes and the men adorn themselves with bracelets and gold. They treat their slaves well and they also carry exquisite clothes because they put great effort in trade. They have many towns and they have a most friendly attitude towards foreigners and strangers who seek refuge, which I think is lovely. Okay. The translator basically says that the Rus are very clean Mm. and they've got all this stuff going on, which is very similar to... Ibn Fadlan's account, and Ibn Fadlan says that their hygiene sucks. Okay. Okay, they've got a whole BO theme going on, it's not good. (laughs) But if you go back to the original account of Ibn Rustar, the word he actually uses is unclean. Oh. Not clean. But they think what's happened is when the translators come to that word, he's translated it deliberately the wrong way because it makes it more palatable for the audience that he's going to be displaying his translation to. So he's not insulting their ancestors. 
So wow. he basically says their ancestors are very clean and they're very posh and it's all wonderful and here's the fabulous account. So well, the, if you go the, back to the original, Ibn Rustar's original account, he actually uses the words for unclean and, and smelly and has so and the translator <laughs> had one job? Yes, you had one job! <laughs> they think this is what happened. They can't be absolutely certain. Okay. But because... He's translated every other word absolutely accurately. When it's come to this one specific word, he's changed and reversed the meaning of it. To say, they were definitely clean and tidy and they did the whole, you know, they were very metrosexual Vikings. And it's not, you know, if you go back to the original, they're not quite up to that exacting standard. Okay. (laughs) Clean and well-trimmed. Beards, I mean. Thank you. Well-trimmed beards. yeah, thanks for that image. I'm not going to get that out of my head all night now. That is wrong. Please don't do that to my brain. Okay, so now we've had a bit of a zoom around Beowulf yeah. via Star Trek. Yeah, well, you know. Via 10th century Arabic. I find it's always worth going via Star Trek, wherever you go. Carry on, sorry. Did I lose you there for a minute? Just a tad. Okay. <laughs> so I think that's probably enough for this time round because okay. we've kind of zoomed about a bit. We have. From the commentary of Beowulf. Through Star Trek. <laughs> Sorry. Just... Beowulf in five minutes or less. Yeah. It didn't work <laughs> out as five minutes, did it? It didn't, but it was beautiful. Anyway. Okay. But I thought it might be worth mentioning these two 10th century accounts and Ooh. how they were then blended with Beowulf to create this new narrative of Eaters of the Dead, which then was the basis for the 13th Warrior. Yeah. So we're taking all the stories and creating them new for the next generations through so it's reinterpreting recreating retelling putting a fresh spin on it and every time then you watch the 13th warrior you might be thinking of beowulf Mm. and picking out the pieces of the narrative that are that beowulf echoes into which then brings into mind that completely different story on top of and you get those layers of meaning which viking literature and storytelling was full of these layers of meaning and I think Mm. the 13th warrior starts layering those meanings through because there are so many narratives inside it that you can unpick. Shall we wrap up there? I think that's a good plan. I think we've probably just kind of bowled them over a bit and boldly gone into the 10th century and into the future without splitting an infinitive. You can find me on Facebook you can find me on Twitter. And if you want to find me for any reason, um, you can find me on Google Plus and Twitter, the thing with the bird, um, <laughs> as Kate Colwin. Um, you can find me on Facebook as Kate Smith, uh, linked to you, Suzanne. Yeah, so we will hold it there. Now we've overloaded your brains with 23rd century and 10th century all in the same all in the same podcast and we will talk to you all next time talk to you then